listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Anybody going home for Christmas this year? Yeah, one. Somebody asked me that. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, somebody asked me that this week, and, uh, you know, are you going home for Christmas this year? And my first inclination was to reply somewhat sarcastically. Um, I actually live in my home. Um, so if I were to travel for Christmas, I would, by definition, not be going home for Christmas, but I didn't respond that way because I knew what they meant. I'm also trying to be better about that sarcasm thing. <laughs> they meant, you know, are you traveling home to your parents' houses for Christmas, to your first home, right? Your family of origins home. Uh, and the answer, by the way, is yes. Um, after church on the 26th, we're going to drive to Iowa and spend some time with my family and my wife's family. Uh, on a deeper level, though, no. Uh, I'm not going home for Christmas. Uh, I'm not going to be at home for Christmas. Because home isn't a place you can go, nor is it a place you can leave. Home is not a place you can be, because home, in the biblical sense, is a place that is coming, a place that we long for but can't get to on our own, a place that is purely a gift, purely grace. Uh, So contrary to the sermon series title, uh, we can't come home for Christmas because home isn't where you grew up and it's not where you live now. Home is a place we're all still trying to find. Because, as we've said in this series so far, to be truly home would to be in a place that perfectly fits us, that was made for us and us for it. Home is that place where you can love and be loved without fear of ever parting from the one that you love, where you can know and be known without fear of rejection, where you can grow without being afraid that you're going to run into some limit at some point. Home is the place where you can rest without worrying about intrusive anxieties impinging on your rest. Home is that place where you can know with absolute certainty that you are not missing out on anything that you need or want. Any of you found that home? Anyone? No? Why not? Well, as we've been following the biblical theme of home all the way through the story of the Bible, as we saw last week, we, are made, we were made for a home, made for us, but we lost that home, and no matter how hard we try or whatever we do or how much energy we put into it, we cannot rebuild that kind of home for ourselves here. We need someone to come and find us and lead us home. Someone needs to find us and lead us home. 
that's what brings us to Hebrews 13. This is one of those classic Christmas passages, <laughs> right? In this four-part Advent series so far, we're exploring this big Bible theme of home, and today is the third week of Advent. We're up to that part of the story where, having lost our perfect home, someone comes to find us and bring us home. But, but even after we've been found, we're not home yet. We're not home yet, but we're homeward bound. So turn with me to Hebrews 13. We're going to pick it up there in verse 11. If, you're, if you grabbed one of those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, this is on page 1197. Hebrews 13, 11 begins with a theme that's repeated throughout the book of Hebrews, repeated and developed. At the beginning of the letter, the author started an argument uh, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. If you've ever tried to read through the whole Bible and you've gotten bogged down in Leviticus going, what does all this mean? The author of Hebrews is here saying, I got you. This is about Jesus, okay? This is all about Jesus. And the author uses the sacrificial system as the background for explaining what Jesus did and how his death on the cross was a sacrifice to forgive sins, a final sacrifice, that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, those repeated yearly sacrifices, pointed forward to. So chapter 13, verse 11, we're picking up in the context of that extended application or explanation and development, 1311. Now the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, all of that in the middle of that verse is things he's already developed before. It's the beginning and the ending that is, uh, that is a new point for him, that the bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. A part of the sacrificial system, one of the sacrifices in particular, involves sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed animal on the altar. But what happened to the body of the animal after its blood had been sprinkled as part of the sacrifice? Well, it was taken outside the camp, And outside the camp there, it was burned, entirely consumed by fire. That's the point, outside the camp. So the author continues to draw some application or some parallel for us from this. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, between these two verses, 11 and 12, there are two parallels going on. The first parallel is that in the same way that the blood of a sacrificed animal covered over the sins of the people for whom it was sacrificed, so the blood of Jesus also covers over the sins of the people for whom he sacrificed himself. And the argument of the letter as a whole up to this point has been that the animal's blood could only temporarily cover sins. Jesus' sacrifice permanently covers sin. This is the whole huge idea uh, that we're talking about when Christians say something like, Jesus died for you, or Jesus died for me. Uh, We mean that Jesus, the, the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, died on a cross so that you, by his blood, could be sanctified, as verse 12 says. That means made holy in God's sight. So when Christians say, hey, come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, or, or get saved, what we mean is if, if you understand that Jesus was God's son and realize he died so that your sins could be forgiven, 
and you believe that that's true and trust that it applies to you, then you have been sanctified. As verse 12 says, you've been made holy in God's sight. Now, if we put that into this whole Bible storyline, the theme that we're studying this year for Advent, then it sounds like this. You have been called home. You have been called home. You have been welcomed home. We were made to fit a home made to fit us, but we rebelled against that home and preferred to wander out and build our own homes. Jesus left his home in heaven in order to come find us and call us home, and one day we will be home with him forever. That's how the the storyline of home works its way through the whole Bible. But here's the catch in that story. We're still living between the third and the fourth parts. We're still living between the third part, where Jesus left his home in order to call us home, and the fourth part, where we are one day home forever. We've been called, but we're not yet home. We're homeward bound, but not yet home. That's the point that the author of Hebrews draws from the second parallel in these two verses. In the same way that the bodies of sacrificed animals are burned outside the camp, so also Jesus suffered outside the gate. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices happened in two different places in Israel's history. In the tabernacle, when they were wandering in the wilderness, and in the temple, once they were in the Promised Land and in Jerusalem and had built the temple. Those were the two places where sacrifices happened. And at both periods in their history, to be inside the camp in the wilderness or to be inside the city gates in Jerusalem was to be in close proximity to the presence of God. If you remember from this sermon series so far, We talked in the first week about how Eden and its garden was mankind's first home, a home we were made to fit and which was made to fit us. The point of that home wasn't necessarily the paradise, though that was nice. The point of the home was God's presence. We dwelt in God's presence. Heaven and earth were together. That's the home we were designed for. Last week, we saw that after humankind lost that home, the builders of the Tower of Babel were the first humans on record who tried to re-engineer heaven and earth coming back together. They built a tower for God to use to come back down to earth in a city to house the temple in which they would worship God and, and trying to bring heaven and earth back together through their own engineering and construction prowess. And God said no, rejected the plan. Because we will never be able to engineer our way back to heaven on earth, no matter what we do. Heaven will only come back to earth when God chooses. At the very end. But God gives and chose to give glimpses of that future heaven and earth reality throughout the story of the Bible. To to actualize that future reality in the here and now, in the tabernacle and in the temple, in the holiest of holy places inside the tabernacle and inside the temple, the presence of God dwelt. Heaven and earth were reunited and rejoined in the holiest of holy places. So, to be inside the camp or inside the city is to be in the place where you have access to the presence of God. Heaven on earth, the home we were made for, in other words. 
To be in the camp, in the city, is to be as close to home as we can get. Except the author of Hebrews has been arguing that heaven and earth are now reunited in the person of Jesus, not in the tabernacle or in the temple anymore, but in the Messiah, in Christ, in Jesus. So here's the point of the parallel in verses 11 and 12. If Jesus, the the God-man in whom heaven and earth are reunited, if he suffered and died outside the gate, then we too should go outside the gate, go to him outside the camp, outside the city, outside the gate. Because the presence of God where heaven meets earth is no longer in the city, it's no longer in the camp, it's in Jesus, in the, in the wilderness. That's the point the author gets to in verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp. We are called out. As Christians, we are called out of the camp, out of the city, out into the wilderness. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor. Um, We're not literally living in a camp during the time period of the Jewish wilderness wanderings, and the author is not literally saying you need to leave the city and build a home out in the wilderness. This is a metaphor for something. It's a metaphor for how we're supposed to live our lives as Christians. And to To dial in on what this metaphor signifies, we have to remember a key analogy that's used throughout the whole of the book of Hebrews, the entirety of the letter. Uh, Over and over again, the author is using the analogy of the wilderness wandering. He's, He's writing to followers of Jesus and saying, hey, you have been rescued from your sin, from slavery to your sin, but you have not yet been delivered into the future heaven that is to come. It's a lot like the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. They've been rescued from Egypt, but not yet delivered to the promised land. So he uses that analogy throughout the letter to continue to impress on us the importance of of moving forward, striving forward, keeping the the image of the, the, the promise in front of us so we keep moving towards that promise, resisting the temptation to settle down here in the wilderness and try to make this into our home when our true home is coming. So here near the very end of the letter, The author's bringing up that analogy yet again, adding layer upon layer to it, compounding the analogies. Uh, We Christians are the ones who have left Egypt and slavery to sin behind, to wander toward the promised land, but we're also to, to leave the wilderness camp behind and to be with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus who's outside the camp, I mean outside the city gate, I mean outside Jerusalem, where you wouldn't expect the presence of God. You see the analogies are just piling up on top of each other. And he takes it, the author takes it one step further. So verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp, bear the reproach he endured. Verse 14, because here we have no lasting city. No lasting city, no lasting camp, no lasting home. We seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is coming. Now remember the uh, the emotional meaning, everything that's packed into that word city, because he's, he's talking about Jerusalem, Jesus being sacrificed outside the city gate, outside of Jerusalem, outside 
of the city. The city is the place where there's safety and refuge and prosperity and opportunity and blessing. The city is where God's presence is or was. Except that God's presence is now in Jesus outside the city. So it's not a stretch to replace the word city here in verse 14 with the word home. For here we have no lasting home. Here we have no lasting home. But we seek the home that is to come. The Christian life, in other words, is a life lived homeless. Or more accurately, the Christian life is a life lived on the way toward home. We're not home yet, but we're homeward bound. Put it yet another way, the the call to discipleship, the call to apprenticeship to Jesus is a call to join Jesus in the wilderness, to emotionally leave behind the things that we're clinging on to to give our lives a sense of importance and significance, a sense of transcendence and worthiness, or a sense of stability and rest. The call to discipleship is a call to wander in the wilderness and a call to resist the temptation to make my it's all going to be okay-ness, you know, my sense that everything's going to be all right. To resist the temptation to find that sense of stability in, you know, the next purchase or the next place or the next home or the next job or the next marriage or the next cause or candidate or calling or family. We could fix any and all of those things and this world would still not be It wouldn't be our real homes. Even if we did everything we could to make this world as close to fitting as possible, it's still not going to fit. To sum it all up, Christians are homebound people, following our God who left his home to lead us out of our homelessness and back home. We've heard the call, but we're not home yet. We're homeward bound. So don't live like this is your home. Don't live like this wilderness is your home, because it's it's not. You may be saying, well, okay, great. This... This world is not my home. Well, how do you live like that? How do, we, how do we do that? How do we live as if this isn't our true home? How do we live in this world? If it's true that our true home isn't here yet, but our true home is coming, it's a city coming from the future, then how do we live in this world now? And what do we do with the overwhelming desire that we all have to make this world fit, to make this world into my home? What do we do with all of that? Let's start briefly by reminding ourselves what the passage teaches us. Christians are those who are called to look forward to the city that is to come, not those who are called to stridently attempt to maintain our hold on the city now, to move towards the city that is to come. 
because the human heart can never permanently rest in anything that's not permanent. Anything we try to rest our hearts on that is temporary will ultimately fail to hold us up. It'll fail to support us at some point in the future. So we're to live leaning toward the home that is to come, which means there's a whole lot of wrong ways or bad ways we can do this, and just a few right ways. Uh, So let me use one example. I'll, I'll put this in the context of one example, and then you can apply it to your particular situation or what's going on in your own life. Uh, Imagine you are at your job. You're at work. It's not hard for me to imagine right now, but for you guys, (laughs) imagine you're at your job. You know, you've gone through school. You've gotten the grades you needed to get in the college you wanted in order to get that piece of paper that says you're worth something and that you're hireable. And now you've taken that around and you've found somebody who agrees with you that, yes, you are hireable for this job. And you've put in the time and you've put in the hours and you've put in the work and you've developed the skills. And you are now at that point where you have landed. You are doing your dream job. Some of you are there. Some of you hope that you're on the way there. Some of you say, that's just a pipe dream. That doesn't even exist. But whatever, just use your imagination. You're in the place where your, your, your work, your job, this is, what, uh, this is what you've dreamed of. And you, you go into work tomorrow. And I can just about 100% guarantee it's still not perfect, is it? It's the thing you thought you, you were going to spend your whole life doing, and you get there, and, and you're pouring yourself into this work, and you're pouring yourself into this job, and, and you're like, I love my job. It's still 70% email, but I love, <laughs> I love what I'm doing and the difference I'm making, but it's still not quite perfect, is it? Now, there may be egregious things going on, immoral and unethical things going on in the people around you, or maybe it's just that it's inefficient in ways that just rub you wrong, or it's like, hey, if the type of people who are committed to this type of work should be better than what we're exhibiting here in the office, or maybe there, there's other things going wrong, or whatever. I, I'm sure you don't have to think too hard to imagine how your job doesn't go exactly the way you want it to do, want it to go. So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We have three options, three at least broad general options. The first is to just completely resign yourself to the fact that this is horrible and it is never going to get any better. Okay, resignation is a very easy path to take. It requires very little of us other than that we uh, shut down and close up all of the human parts of ourselves that, you know, hope for the future and have feelings and things like that. Um, So, yeah, very easy to do, just give up, nothing will ever get better, no point in even trying. Okay, that's option one, resignation. Option two, we're going to make some changes around here, right? Okay, we're going to identify some problems, put together some strategic plans, we're going to make some action steps, we're going to allocate budget and resources towards this, we're going to tackle these problems, we're going we're to make some big, hairy, audacious goals, and we're going to follow through on the most important things that we need to track, and we're going to do all of this, and, and by doing all of this work, someday in the future, I, I know that if I do all this, I will come into work, and on that day that I have finally arrived and made all these changes, I will come in and it will feel like home. 
like it's right, like it fits, that it's finally the way it's supposed to be. Are you with me? That's wrong attempt or wrong path number two. Because no matter how hard you try, it never gets there. So there's a couple of wrong ways to approach this hypothetical situation. Here's, here's a good way to approach it. Your job, your dream job, it doesn't fit. It's not what you, it, it, there's something wrong with it. Even if it's what you were made to do, it's still, it, so you, you identify problems and you create strategic plans and action steps and you allocate budget and resources and you do all of this work and you bring, you bring change to this organization and you do it all because the city to which you are going, the home to which you are going, in that home, no job will be like my job, like this thing is now. And so I am going to do everything I can to transform this place, this place of work, until it becomes a shadow or a foretaste or a sign or a picture of the city that is to come, the home that is to come. Do you see the difference? In one of them, you say, if I can only make this place perfect, then I will feel at rest. In the other, you say, because I am at rest in the city that is to come, I will do what I can to transform this place until it begins to look like where we're going. And maybe putting it in terms of a job is a, a little difficult um, for us to wrap our heads around, because for some of you, it, it, some of us, it may not be our job that we're trying to transform for, like that. For some of us, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's in a marriage or in a relationship. You're in a marriage and you, are, uh, you and your spouse are working hard for peace. Peace and a sense of security because, in your marriage because that's what you need in order to feel like you can rest in this relationship. Okay, in order for me to feel like this relationship is meeting my needs, for me to rest in it, I need to figure out how to most efficiently reduce the number of negative emotions I experience in your presence. How's that for a mission statement for your marriage? <laughs> or you could look towards the city, the home that is to come where our hearts rest and say, in that city, no marriage will be without peace. Every marriage will feel like home. And so I am going to do what I can in my marriage now so that it becomes a, a, a signpost, a picture, a foretaste, a shadow of the city that is to come, of what my marriage will be when I am home. You see the difference? Those two individuals may... Uh, going these different routes, maybe doing the exact same things, but one of them is doing it in order to get themselves a sense of rest and peace and at-homeness, and the other is saying, I will never be at rest because this, this is the wilderness. This isn't home, but there's a home coming. And because the home is coming, I can transform this world around me right now to begin to be shaped like the city that is to come. Now, we need to wrap this up so that we can take communion together. Next week, Pastor Jeff is going to unveil for us the biblical picture of the city that is to come, because we need a robust and a compelling vision of that city if we are going to orient ourselves towards it. We need to know what it looks like if we're going to know how to, how to go in that direction, because we can only maintain our commitment as 
as pilgrim people, people who are on the way, when only as long as we know that there's a city to which we are going. Without it, if you, don't, if you don't believe that you are going somewhere, then the only other option, the only alternative is to sit down here in the wilderness and say, I guess I'll just do whatever I can to make this feel like home. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to wander towards our home that is to come. And as we do, to remember that the one who is in the wilderness leading us home is the one who left his own home to come and find us. He's the one who took exile so that we could be welcomed home. And he's the one who ultimately will one day draw all of us into one camp, one city, and in his presence, we'll finally be home. Let's pray. Father, you have called us heavenward, homeward, towards that city whose foundations are secured, secure, whose builder and maker is God. Father, in this meal that we are about to partake together, we pray that uh, the, cr- the cracker, the juice, the body and the blood of Jesus would be a tangible reminder to us that The one who leads us in the wilderness does not lead us astray. The one who leads us in the wilderness has given himself for us. And may the beauty of his sacrifice for us give us the strength to heed his call and to follow him into the wilderness until we are home. And may this meal give us grace to sustain us in this period between the promise and the promise coming to pass. We pray in Jesus' name.